Hi, Shailaja. Welcome to Network Capital. I am uh, so excited to be hosting you today. Thanks, Utkarsh. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's nice to talk to you too. Uh, Shailaja, your work, your career has been, um, you know, has been a fascinating one. Can you just tell our listeners who you are and how do you come to care about the questions that you're interested in? Okay, sure. So I'm Shailaja Fennell and uh, I guess my academic journey began in Delhi. Uh, I finished school in Delhi. I was a science student, as many people were in the 80s. Uh, but I was um, deeply concerned about the fact that though scientific knowledge had advanced hugely, it didn't seem to be making an adequate impact on the lives of people. And so I made a decision to leave science much to the surprise of my parents and to join economics at Delhi University. So that was the first step of my journey. And that brought me in the subsequent years through a BA and an MA and MPhil at Delhi University to Cambridge to do a PhD on agriculture where I compared China and India. And I've been teaching at the University of Cambridge in the Department of Land Economy for slightly over a quarter century. So that's my journey. Yeah, a career transitions fascinate me. In fact, uh, you know, a piece that I wrote for Harvard Business Review that comes up first when you Google career transitions. And uh, I've just been really interested in how people shape their careers. How did they get interested in the problem? So for you, when you decided to switch from, say, uh, science to economics and then exploring agriculture, was there uh, a driving factor internally or was there something outside that you saw I'm really interested in understanding how you made the transition. So I think there's probably one on both sides, one on internally and one on externally. Um, I've always liked gathering facts and, and mm. I like as a child, uh, as a teenager, I used to read encyclopedias and, and, and uh, books on natural history. So there was clearly a drive in me to make sense of the world uh, and then I, sitting in Delhi as I was in the late 70s, I was surprised. I mean, Delhi was a thriving city, and, and yet I was wondering, how, how do you manage a city? I and mean, that, that, at that time, it was not even 10 million, but a big city. And how do you manage? And why do some people have toilets and some people not? These are the kind of questions of 14-year-old that, that concerned me, that there were clearly differences. And also, how, how come, how, if we go forward, would we try and ensure that the natural environment, Delhi is a very beautiful city, certainly was when I was growing up and the natural world, the birds, the peacocks, I mean, how does the human world coexist in the natural world? So that I think is a driver that was outside of me and the mm. consequence of the two of them, I got really keen to understand natural environments and ecology. And I became a member of a group that had developed in Delhi in the late 70s called Kalpabriksh, which was the hmm. first environmental group that was created. And uh, some of the people in that group remain my friends. And we have a, a, a I think we, we were part of that generation in, in, in India that was really keen to understand the natural world. So that's the external driver. 
fascinating. So you come to Cambridge and you start your uh, uh, DPhil work. Um, how did you shape it? Uh, walk me through the journey, the question that you got interested in. So the origins of that question, I think, returned to my undergraduate days at, at Delhi University. Um, we had a paper called Comparative Economic System, another paper called Development. And I was really curious about why countries took different paths. Uh, and, and that paper allowed us to explore that. So countries across um, Asia, Japan, China, India, um, but also other papers um, which looked at the development in Germany and in the UK in terms of industrialization. And I was particularly struck in the early 80s when I was doing my undergrad degree, China was emerging as a power because we were getting new data since they had moved away from uh, a communist to a, a reform process. And I was very curious, these are two countries with the biggest populations in the world and together had a considerable part of the world's food production. And what would the world look like at the end of the 20th century? That was a puzzle that I wasn't really well um, tooled to be able to research, but it was a big question in my head. And then when I did my master's, I was very fortunate that I had two excellent uh, teachers on the development course, um, Professor Shukumar Chakravarti, who then went on to be my MPhil supervisor, who had previously advised the planning commission, and uh, Professor Kaushik Basu. And they helped me very much with both the understanding of the, the theory as well as how one worked through that. I had a disadvantage. In addition, I didn't know Chinese. And, and though I was uh, an MPhil student at Delhi School and teaching full-time at Kirorimal College, uh, that's another bit of a story we can explore later, um, I needed to do that. And, and speaking with Shukumoy, it was very clear that I needed to go somewhere I could be trained. So um, I wrote to Oxford and Cambridge and the SOAS, places that I knew did this kind of work. And I was fortunate to get into all three. And I, I chose Cambridge because it, it had the ability to learn Chinese and to, to study at the same time. So that's what my journey began. And of course, in Cambridge, I did another MPhil uh, while I uh, learned Chinese for two years to prepare myself to go to China. And uh, now you, I'm assuming you speak Mandarin and you're able to... Uh, you know, with all to... languages, if you don't practice, your, your fluency goes down. So when hmm. I haven't visited China uh, for some years, and at the moment I haven't because of COVID, my fluency goes down to the level of maybe an eight-year-old. But I think the same <laughs> thing happens with my Indian languages if I don't practice them. So though I, I understand and speak Bangla, I think it's more like a five-year-old now. So you really have to practice. But yes, yeah. I, 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 I learned, and I think learning Chinese was a very important part of the story then. India and China often come up uh, in, in the same breath in different uh, conversations, economics, technology, agriculture, but there really are such different systems. Do you want to comment on that when it comes to agriculture and reforms? That's a really good question, Utkarsh. And I, I remember a number of very noted scholars in, in the field of economics saying, how can you compare these two countries? And I, I always recall that because it was like, oh my God, am I going to fail my PhD? Did I choose something wrong? And I think the answer I give is as countries, in terms of the scale of agricultural production, the number of people, the percentage of the population employed in agriculture, they were two very similar countries. And despite different political systems, the intention in both was to feed its people. And so one could then look at political institutions as a differentiator. 
Uh, you could run, you know, econometrics if you wanted and have institutions as, as one way to distinguish. But what I was interested in actually was the yields. How did they increase the yields? What did they do? And most particularly at the time I was doing my PhD in the early 1990s, we were getting subnational data. Now we have district level data for both countries. That time we were getting subnational data. So I was using indices to calculate instability in food production in both countries. Because my concern was not that they wouldn't be able to grow food, clearly both had benefited from the green revolution. But if food production became more unstable, and this is a pre-climate change you know, context, what would the future look like? Because people were quite comfortable in the early 90s. They were saying, oh, there's enough food in the world. You know, uh, The yields were very high, for example, in Punjab, in Tamil Nadu, in South India, in Sichuan, in, southern, uh, uh, in central China, in Guangdong, in southern China. But yet the states and the provinces with the highest yields were also showing the highest instability. So my interest was really looking at subnational patterns. And interestingly, you know, those states have moved out of agriculture as the highest value production in the subsequent decades. So I'm not saying I said it first, but I think I was onto something. You were really onto something. And um, India and China, again, have taken a very different path. But when you come to uh, both countries, um, how are there some fundamental uh, similarities and fundamental differences in the approach and what might one learn from the other? So this is something that subsequent to the PhD uh, for the next 10 years that really interested me. And that was how does reform proceed? I mean, clearly both countries have embarked on reform by the time we come to the 2000s, there's distinctive reform. But in relation to the agricultural sector, the supply chain focus has been very different in the two countries. So um, in, in China, it was interesting that through the 2000s to the, 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 through the first decade of the 21st century, um, what was happening was a greater movement by the state out of food production. So the mm -hmm. idea was that food production would be something devolved to local administrations with the responsibility of local cities, for example, the metropoles to feed their population. So either you can produce food and the metropoles get the food in that province or you import the food from others. Uh, so it was devolving. In the case of India, that was not the case. Um, agriculture is a very important subject for state governments. The center also plays a role. So the food supply system stayed within the public sector. That was one big difference. The second difference was the way technology was adopted. Um, the Chinese took a huge advance in terms of things like livestock production. They were interested in, as they went up the food supply chain, what kinds of technologies would they need to, because one of the big projections that the International Food Policy Research Institute did was, if you like, if every country is going to be like an average American, we may not want to be, but in terms of consumption, how much meat would we need? And so the, the livestock yields were not very high in China in the early 2000s, so a huge amount of investment in that. Whereas India put in much more investment in terms of food availability, uh, in terms of how we provide food. So the food distribution system continued to be our focus. Um, and again, this is absolutely the right of sovereign states to decide how they wish to uh, advance their food policy, but very distinctive differences in the logistics of that. Yeah, your work on food has been fascinating, food and agriculture. Um, could you just tell us uh, our audience comprises uh, millennials and Gen Zs from all around the world? Um, what is food like? What does food today mean in India? And uh, are there regional differences, country differences that exist in what we eat? 
because what we've gathered from your work and your talks is that uh, you feel that what we put on our mouth is uh, is a complex question we'd love to have a short discussion on it you know food is an amazing subject because it brings people together but it also has very sharp opinions as we all talk about our foods and the things we like and it's also interesting how how um what has evolved in the last two decades as global foods has brought some national cuisines to the forefront but all national cuisines are not brought up to the same level so um as i said you know tongue-in-cheek in my previous comment we may not all want to have an american diet and indeed most people might eat international cuisine but they also have a, a strong uh, affinity to the things that remind them of home so food has um, that kind of emotive value uh, and if we think of it in in that particular way then at one level food is identical because it's a combination of carbohydrate protein fats and micronutrients at another level there are worlds of food and food takes you to those different worlds and most mm. of us would say and so you say what is your comfort food it would be very much something that you associate with your family or where you're from or a moment of joy and security right so for me i'm tamil for me it's thai shadam dahi chawal there is no way something else would not be my comfort food but it is very interesting because if you think about the question you ask more seriously what does food look like today over the last 60 70 years though food production has increased and we're eating much better and there is more than enough food to feed the world in fact we waste a lot of food eating more doesn't mean eating better in fact eating less is eating better so one of the reasons i say that is there's been a rise in adult obesity that goes with the way in which we currently eat processed carbohydrate processed carbohydrate is pure sugar it operates like a dump in your body and it um turns um off uh, a, a, an orderly insulin production in the body and so we find for example in south asia in particular a huge rise by 40 50% an increase in adult diabetes in the last decade and the who has recognized this as as a major problem you could put it again um, somewhat quizzically um, first world disease in the third world country but really what it's saying is that the way we understand food is a global problem you can be eating and you can still be undernourished while being obese because you have the wrong mix of foods so if you hmm. don't have the micronutrients you are undernourished in terms of micronutrients even though you're eating more so understanding food as in what human beings need in their bodies to be a form of energy is something that we have not done in the last 60 years i'd say we have been caught up so much in producing enough food i'm not saying that there are not hungry people not at all but i'm saying as food industries we are providing a huge amount of food which we are saying is in response to demand uh, but the kinds of food demands we have are not helping us as human population so i think we need to take a serious reconsideration at what we eat and why we eat it if we want to stay healthy as a population it's hard because every other day there is some new research some new thread going along about what we should eat how we should eat um i i don't want to make it a nutrition class or a fitness class but i'd love your perspective on why did you say the eating less is eating better and how might that translate to agricultural practices that uh, countries have so in a context of a climate crisis and certainly in the week that we yeah. are speaking with these very high temperatures of above 40 even in the uk clearly rice wheat and maize are uh, the three cereals that predominate and come to about 60% almost of the total foods that we eat globally as a species 
Um, all three of them are perfectly adequate cereals and the history of them, there's huge variety, but the, we eat a particular singular form of maize, rice and wheat globally. So it's only basmati rice or it's a particular kind of wheat. And we eat them at a very highly processed level. So this group of 60% of what we consume in terms of cereals being a majority is going to be affected by the climate crisis. If the temperatures go above 50, rice and wheat certainly as seed become sterile. So you cannot then use them to grow again. That's going to have a huge impact on, on the world of farmers who, um, except in very high income contexts, do use seed as the basis of next year's um, sowing. There's a whole group of uh, um, cereals that we used to consume, which we collectively call millets, so which in India we call bajra and ragi. And there's a huge variety. They're not a single family, they're just small seeds. The word millet <laughs> means small seed compared to rice. So rice and wheat, if they're this big, millets are this small, uh, relatively speaking. So these varieties of, of cereal, these cereals, sorry, have a much greater resistance both to heat, they can probably grow up to 52 degrees, but also they need much less water and not require irrigation. You can sow the seed and they'll just grow. So they're like your natural grasses. That whole variety of, of uh, cereals that we're not thinking of need to return. And they were things that were consumed um, at the beginning of the 20th century in, in many low-income countries and still consumed as you know uh, side dishes in, in um, foods that are used at particular ceremonies or impacts. But this whole group, are grown right across. So you have temperate millets going all the way up into Japan and, and you have tropical millets growing all the way through into Sub-Saharan Africa. So these small seeds and small grains would allow us to eat less, but they'd also be less heavy. We tread much more lightly on Mother Earth, if you like, because we'd use less water and we'd use be able to manage these temperatures. So in terms of thinking about the future of the human species and thinking about the future of the planet, uh, a shift in the way we think about that part of our plate, which is cereals, would be very helpful. And so that would be one part of the story that we could think about. But really, the idea of eating less is eating, enjoying the food, but not eating so much. The quantity is not representative of quality. So if you look at a typical food plate in, in, um, in a semi-arid part of the world, places that have less than you know, 150 millimeters of rain, people would eat something that's carbohydrate, typically a millet, or if you're in South America, we all know the super grain quinoa, but you know something small seed, you'd eat some greens and greens are a really important part. You know, the, all the leaves that we have, huge varieties of them, all have micronutrients. And you'd have some source of protein, typically lentils or something else. Or if you're very poor communities, insects provide that same protein base. You know, other things provide that protein base. That's the combination that is light, light in the body, light on the earth. And so the 20th century gave us an abundance of tech to provide food. But I think we have shall we say, overuse that to the detriment of the planet and the human species. Yeah. Uh, do you want to comment on market and the role of marketing in evangelizing certain kinds of food? When I met you, I asked you a bit about uh, superfoods, which we can get to in some time. But uh, curious to hear your thoughts. So I mentioned earlier when you asked me about India and China, how important supply chains are and the choices it gives you in terms of the logistics and where you want to invest in the supply chain. 
I think one of the interesting features, if you look at aggregators in the supply chain globally, is a lot of the aggregation and the value tends to go to the high income world. So we mm. tend to take produce and it is processed typically outside the country. Now, increasingly in middle income countries, the processing is taking place in country. And so what you tend to get is single varieties of a particular crop making it to the global market because that's the only one that's been standardized. For me, the most amusing example, if it wasn't so serious, is the Cavendish banana. There's only one banana that European markets are allowed to take and has a particular a curve and a particular color and a particular taste. That's hugely problematic because every single species is subject to disease. And if you do monocultures, much more so. So every time there's a blight on the Cavendish banana, the world goes, oh, what do we produce now? And there's, there's a cost to it. Um, similarly, um, could be a natural disaster. We now have Ukraine and people say, oh, there's no wheat being produced. Should we produce more wheat? My argument is completely counter to that. I'm saying this is an opportunity for diversity. As someone who comes out of India, colleagues will often say, you know, oh, the worst mangoes go out of the country. You don't get the whole variety of mangoes. Well, what prevents us from thinking about a mango supply chain where you want to supply different kinds of mangoes? But certainly for the banana or for other features, the idea of diversity would allow that crop to survive, but also would give the IP rights, as we've seen in recent years, to the country where it is located. And that would allow value to be retained, as happens with so many processed products, you know, whether you're talking about um, French champagne or you're talking about cheeses, there is a whole world of IP rights that allows value to be redistributed. And I really think a lot more work has to be done in that, in terms of investing in countries in the global south, which actually retain a lot of that biodiversity compared to the global north. Yeah. Um, this is like, you know, these differences and the way we really need to start looking at supply chains uh, to the supermarket, consumer preferences, policymakers, uh, academics. Now, you engage with all of them. And uh, a part of your job is to uh, collaborate with them to figure out ways forward. Uh, what, what are some of the most difficult conversations you've had to had, have in the past few years? And what have you learned from them? So um, conversations are difficult because um, each group that you work with has a lot of knowledge from within their sector. They're not as comfortable with knowledge coming from other sectors. This would be equally true for academics from different disciplines. So it's not something that's unique to one set of features. So one of the challenges we've had is that, you know, when scientists discover a new product or a new, you know, they, 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 evolve the genetic structure to a particular purpose. Okay, so now we can try this out on the real world. And apropos my earlier point, you know, if the taste isn't there, no one's going to buy it, right? So then you've got to go from the scientific discovery to the trying out in the field, and then to ensure that there is a market for it. So when we worked on millets and we're looking at millets and in relation to, you know, oh, we can buy or 45 millets. Now this is ICRISAT, the International you know, uh, Council looking at research on semi-arid tropics, which is based, uh, one headquarters is in Hyderabad and Patancheru, and there are offices elsewhere, like in Addis and other places, uh, um, in, in this case in Ethiopia. They wanted to use this variety because it would reduce uh, with, with iron fortification, the anemia levels in mothers and children, which is really important very interesting. We were part of, of our project to, to do this and go into different communities. 
in both Ethiopia and Gambia, they said, but does it taste better? And then we said, well, who did you ask? Uh, and they said, oh, we just gave it to the farmers to grow. And we said, no, taste matters. And, and the women said, they didn't give it to us. We're the ones who cook the food. So if you look at the supply chain, it is, it is very clear that there is a social dimension to it. And so there is this conflict, high level research, uh, bringing the investors in, bringing the communities. My sense is doing much more of research that allows these collaborations to co-create, co-design and co-produce the solution is far more effective and would reduce the time that we've taken in the past to get innovations moving. Uh, and that I think has been the lesson that I have myself learned. And often we ask the wrong questions because we pose the problem the wrong way. We see a problem in the lab or in the classroom and we take that notion to the field. Um, I remember a colleague of mine in, in early years in research in Sub-Saharan Africa said, you know, you don't ask people what they already know. You ask them what they want to know. So, you know, you need to get their mindset. And often a good marketing person might be part of a research team that's necessary. <laughs> um, Shalja, when you look at uh, the Indian approach to agriculture today, I'm not talking politically about A no. party or B party, but like what, what is, what are we trying to do uh, to make ourselves future proof? And what are some questions we should be asking? as policymakers, as scientists and academics to make India sort of food secure or food smart in a way? Really good question, Akash. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things I would say is I am so inspired by the richness of civil society initiatives that exist in India uh, at the local level and some of them cross regions. So, and, and often it is, part of something that we have, which is a popular science movement. The idea of science is something attractive to people. And often scientists in India will spend their time outside of their work to do this, which is exciting. But in many cases, it is a pradhan of a village or a community that says something works. And people talk to each other through their social networks. So organizations that collect, for example, species of rice, or of millets that share between farmers groups. These have been methods in the last 10, 15 years that I've found very, very exciting because it recognizes something that often is not visible at the global level. How much is happening in terms of knowledge exchange, which is below the radar because global communities tend to talk above the national level. So the nation is a single unit for them. But if you look at this, this is extremely powerful. And so for me, understanding, as I said, in relation to the earlier question you asked, what do communities need? What do they already know? So often communities know that this variety is used for this. So for example, rice can be used for medicinal purposes. Some rices are used for medicinal purposes. Others are used because they have a particular fragrance. To actually document and put these things together is happening now in India. There's also a collection of, um, again, as I said, lots of young scientists. You know, I've been to the Indian Institute of Sciences in recent years talking to young scientists. And while they do their day job, they also often have organizations with civil society going out and you know, um, from, you know, how many butterflies are there in Bangalore to how do we translate things to the local languages? How do we think from local languages into the regional language? These kinds of things have become possibly partly because of tech and Indian tech, particularly in the IT sector and the use of multiple languages on our keyboards have made these things possible. Um, we could include this in, for example, 
stuff that happens in schools at secondary school. You could make, you know, young citizens part of these civil society initiatives. These are really exciting possibilities. And I think I find them very valuable. So that's one set of answers. Another set of answers that I think is very valuable is state governments. And again, it's not the politics of state governments, it's state governments that want to do things. And interestingly, sometimes it's the new states because they've got something to prove, right? So we were fascinated, uh, for example, Orissa Millet's mission, or it could be a state that has many backward districts, or you know, what I call the aspirational districts at the moment, because they want to prove that it's possible to move forward. And the Orissa Millet's mission came out of that, and now Jharkhand and Chhattisgarh, and now, of course, next year, so exciting, International Year of the Millets. And this came yeah. out of collaborative activity. Similarly, you know, Telangana and Andhra Pradesh, the hottest states, they're working with ICRISAT for more millets research. Now Karnataka is. So it's not the politics with the big P. It's really the politics of state governments that want to be seen to be doing stuff. And that, I think, is powerful and for the good. Do you want to comment on Foxnuts or what's called Makana in India? Mm -hmm. Is there mm -hmm. anything to be learned from there? Because now I see a lot of packaged foods um, you know, which are serving up as healthy snacks. Is there something there that we should be thinking about? You know, when we were doing the military researches, I think maybe 2018, 19, I had an opportunity to meet a bunch of chefs and they were having a meeting with other people who were involved in the uh, snack food trade. So the mm. equivalents of, of the Haldiram, it wasn't Haldiram, but somebody else, Chiwada. And I said, can we have millets, Chiwada? And they were like, yeah, sure, if we can make it tasty and somebody wants to buy it, but you know, we need a minimum you know, scale and to do that. What is this proving? That food on the go is something that's really important. And this makes sense. You know, you've got young families, maybe both the husband and wife are working or long days. The idea of preparing food from scratch might be something that the slow food movement's great for the weekend, may not work during the week when everyone's got long hours and you've got to pack your kids' lunchbox and they have to get the bus at 6.45 in the morning. So whether it's the makanas or the other forms of extruded, you know, you can take millets as an example where in, in Andhra Pradesh now, um, there are organizations that say make it into pasta. So, you know, I'm like, okay, so then we can have millets Maggie rather than wheat Maggie. Hmm. But, you know, jokes aside, it is really important to have food on the go, which is healthy. Um, and extrusion is a great idea because, as you said, with makana or with the pasta, you're using the flour and converting it into a pre-processed product, which means the flour has a longer shelf life. And this is really important because if you just use millet flour, after two weeks it goes off and it smells bad and you can't eat it. So I think there's a lot in the value chain and, again, learning from communities. And the thing that we discovered is why is this not becoming scaled? Because the size we have of, um, of the big machines for processing rice and wheat is at the level of a district. So you like want uh, 10,000 farmers to come and you know, give their units. Well, what about mm. if you had 500 farmers, right? So the size of the machine has to get smaller. And if I can be nerdy for a minute, the ball bearings for millets have to be smaller than those for rice and wheat because the smaller grain. So we were talking to people at IIT Madras in Bombay. They said, sure, you know, in Coimbatore, you can do this. But somebody has to go and talk to them and give them an order, which makes it worth their while. So here's what I think, you know, this is a private sector investment opportunity. So while we're talking about what's healthy, we need to link it to what we can do to make it processable. And it's not a far reach. I mean, when I was a kid, you didn't expect, you know, uh, filter coffee to be in a packet or idli uh, dough to be, it's available. You know, you can get so many things in the system that are processed. So why would we not think of Makana or any one of these others? Another one is amaranth or rajgaria, as we call it in Northern India. It's a superfood. 
taking your next point ahead. It's fantastic. You can drizzle it on top of your cereal. You know, you, there are so many things that we can think about. But a lot of it is going back to your grandmother's cookbooks, finding out what they ate and why they ate it. What they ate it, why they ate it. Um, one worry I have with, uh, with the way things are right now is that it's a bit expensive. So if I remember the cost of a fox nut packet, uh, it's more than a lot of people can afford. So sometimes I worry, are these foods going to be first appropriate, appropriated by the wealthy and then the poorer folks don't necessarily get to enjoy them? Uh, can we do something to make it a little more accessible? Uh, maybe a policy measure, maybe a measure from the markets. I'm not sure if you've studied this, but would love to get your thoughts. It's great, Utkarsh, that you raised this. So in the Punjab, you know, Punjab, of course, doesn't have a lack of water, has too much water and water is sort of overflowing because of the flooding of the fields to grow rice. And, you know, one of the things that we discovered in our Tigris project over the five years was that, you know, there was one farmer in one of the villages who was growing organic. And he was taking his stuff to Chandigarh once a week because there's a high income market there. There are people, you know, who global citizens who want to eat this. It was getting a good price. Nobody else in his farm area was doing it. And you know, he, he, he did it because he felt he had a mission to do it. But the point that he was making is that we can't eat what we sell because we need that income and we're gonna eat the process forms and the other things. So this is something that is not just happening in the Punjab, the organics going to the high end and people who are producing it, not consuming it. The same thing we saw, for example, in Gambia, you're selling millets, but you're eating polished rice. So the poor are being more exposed to those diseases than the rich, and this is a danger. And so there needs to be a conversation uh, about providing appropriate ways of information through the system. So one of the things that Dorisa Millet's mission did that our colleagues in Punjab were doing through uh, what's called the MTK mission, which is a mobile kitchens, you know, training women in the case of mobile kitchens started in, in, in Calcutta and then doing now in Punjab, women in semi-urban areas who work as maybe, you know, informal sector workers or domestic servants in other people's houses, training them about the value of things that they cook. And that's very much the group where very long hours in the day, women are working, the men are working. Hard to imagine that they have the time to think about, you know, that and the price uh, being high, but thinking about the benefits to them of it. And if you can cook it, you can replace. So for example, um, if you don't have, um, if you cook millets, it reduces the, the weight by this much. It makes you exercise better, but it has to be part of a behavioral change. So three months training, your certificate, you cook it, you learn, but a community of women doing it together. So there's distinct advantages. And, and part of that could happen, but it needs to occur maybe where there's already an NGO or an intervention taking place. So there's a trusted provider who will be there through the process, or it could be a local university. Uh, and these are institutions that do exist in, in metropoles in India, but also in, in smaller towns and in, in, in terms of educational institutions. So tying it through that is one way, or we can go top end as we do. We've got, an, we created an organization during COVID called the Forgotten Crop Society. Uh, which is bringing Love all those name. crops together. Yeah. It's global. Anyone can join corporate scientists. We just yeah. want to bring them to bear. And one of our, our, our key figures is a chef called Pierre Tiam. He, he is a well-known figure in New York, <laughs> a fantastic restaurant. And he is championing a West African grain, which is tiny, called Fonio. And he has created a company called Yolele, 
he grows the furniture for his restaurant, but he invests back. And now your Lele is available on health food shops, but all the money goes to the community growing it. I don't think Indians are less entrepreneurial than others. I think we can think of a lot of these smart solutions. Um, I think we need to get into food big time. We're foodies in India, but we get, need to get into the processing of food and think about that as well. Do you want to tell us more about the society and this collaboration with this uh, chef who I'm very well uh, acquainted with? Oh, rather, I know of him very much so, but I'm not sure everyone does. So okay. do you want to... Yeah. So uh, my colleague, Michel Ganem, he's been the, the, the spearhead behind this. He and I spoke over um, COVID period through the uh, Global Food Security Initiative, which is a cross-disciplinary initiative based at the University of Cambridge. And um, together we decided, so many conversations, let's just get people together. So we launched this last year. We had 100 odd people who came to the first meeting, signed up scientists across, but also social scientists. And what we wanted to do is to ask them, what are the particular ingredients they use, which are forgotten? Forgotten because global institutions don't trade them, not forgotten in communities. So if you go to the Punjab and say, Rajgira, people are going to say, yeah, we eat it, right? We grow it along the hedgerow. But people outside don't know. If, if you come from Southern India, we still eat millets. We make millet dosa and millet idli, it's not unheard of. So, you know, it's not that it's forgotten, but it's not been looking at by the big organizations. And we want investment. We want to think about how we can bring these to bear because of their value for diversity. And also because it gives knowledge in communities value. These are important aspects. So, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, yams, taro, so things we call arbi, right, or others, are the source, cassava, source of food. And again, they're very concentrated carbs. You can eat very little and you can go for a long time. And this is all part of this whole smart plate, if you like, in thinking about it. Mm. And I actually invited a, a colleague as part of this, Asma Khan, who is an extremely well-known cook in, in, in the UK. And she's got really brilliant principles. She ran, runs a, a kitchen called Darjeeling Express. But her, her morals are very high. She says, it's a women's kitchen. It's for women to come to the forefront. These are women who were not trained as chefs, but cooked at home. And my idea is to bring their knowledge and their ideas. So I asked her about millets and she said, great. Or my next thing, I'm going to ask my, my women chef, how many of them do millets and what can we do with millets? So the idea of having PRTM is he uses this. He's an example. But we want to get the top chefs across different global cuisines to talk about things that they use. The other thing Asma Khan says, if you look at her uh, uh, programs and she's you know, on many times, she won't use couscous. Because she says it's about something that was related to colonialism. When you think about opium or the poppy or you think about Neil. So moral values are something chefs can have. And it's really important that they talk about these things because food is, as I said, part of identity. And PATMs are the same thing. Says Fonio is what I ate as a child. I will cook you what I think is genuine food. Asma does the same thing out of her history of who she is as, as someone who grew up in, in Bengal and the food that they ate. So I think we need to both celebrate uh, culinary genius and cuisine and think through what it means to us because identity is part of what we uh, enjoy in food. We'd love to, uh, to get your comment on food and identity. How do you connect them? Why is it important? Why does this matter today? Okay. So at, <laughs> at a level of uh, human beings we we are i guess it's trite we are what we eat 
but also what we eat affects the way the metabolism is and what we do and things that we ate in very early childhood have have a comfort value as i said it's odd because some of the things are, are not necessarily good for another generation so the generation in in the uk that grew up during the war ate a really funny form of meat called spam which is like processed meat which is not meat meat but my father-in-law who's australian was brought up on that and he thought oh it's amazing and i kept looking and going it's not so sometimes <laughs> it's a generational thing about what is but you know it is it's a moment for laughter and why it's important but identity and food is really about thinking about who you share your lives with so mm. i i also work in 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 with colleagues across asia so in central asia it's something that we know in india as indian but it comes from central asia the idea of the dastarkhan the idea you mm. open a large uh, a tablecloth all the food is brought everybody around the tablecloth is your family and you break bread together right this is fundamental human existence right in terms of the joy of sharing the food that has been cooked or what we call mehman nawazi in india right the idea that the the atithi devo bhava the idea that the guest is god and these are ways in which we re identify ourselves as human beings it's a very powerful feature and so i think in that sense identity matters i also think in terms of being able to cook and sharing the experience of cooking mm -hmm. uh people learn about each other it is hard to dislike someone whose food you've eaten and you've enjoyed it uh, <laughs> it builds friendships <laughs> you can have arguments about which is better uh, sometimes you may not win there are those people who think you know it's always in the mango season as we are coming to the end there's always the debate between those who like gulab khas versus those who like langada will fight but hopefully there'll be friendly fights and we we'll learn about each other so identity in food culturally identity in food biologically but i think the one that i would like to push is the idea of food and identity and the planet we can mm -hmm. only eat that which allows us to recreate if we destroy when we're eating in a sense we're not leaving it for the next generation and that's what worries me let's actually discuss the planet a bit more before your next meeting um does meat eating um worry me not do, do you think about meat eating and what might be a way forward i read yesterday that uh, the current market is of about 850 billion and by 2025 is likely to be a trillion dollar market so clearly meat is popular around the world um are there environmental consequences of it do you think that this uh, this artificial meat is the answer i would love to get your thoughts so i was asked that a couple of weeks ago at a, a conference we had in cambridge the cambridge gland challenges and i i don't know what my colleagues thought uh, but yes artificial protein is clearly an area that uh, people are are interested in it's an expensive process uh, because to to grow on a petri dish is not going to be cheap in energy terms you've got to grow the meat you've got to process it it's going to be $100 uh, you know for for a unit of meat maybe some people can afford it it's way more expensive than even uh, the things that we were talking about earlier the superfoods there's another way of thinking about protein and that is to go to communities that are less well endowed and see how they eat protein and i mentioned insects earlier right There are tribal mm. communities that eat ants, locusts, and these are foods which are based on creatures that are seen as not helpful for the environment. So you keep the balance by consuming mm. them when there's a when there is an infestation. Mm. 
these are sensible ways to manage protein. So you don't need, and this is something like uh, apparently after the conference over, people were talking about and, and colleagues in Africa said, absolutely. These are methods that we have of managing our environment. There is no doubt the evidence is there, the IPCC reports say that we cannot continue to have as many cattle as we want. That the, the, the methane emissions are incredibly high. It is not a sustainable form of uh, livelihood maintenance. And therefore, while protein is a central feature in our diet, the forms in which we manage our resources to get that protein is incredibly inefficient. There is no doubt about that. So we can think about combinations of lentils and insects. There are lots of Latin American economies are thinking of processing the various grubs that they eat into protein pellets. We don't have to go for the high expensive version of artificial meat that is cultivated in a petri dish. I have no moral issues on it, but I'm saying it is not economically the most efficient way to go. Eat less, eat lightly, go back to look at plates that existed. I'm not saying the past was glorious, but there's a lot below the radar that we can learn about before we go for, or it's not either or, there's no trade-off. What the only thing that we need to recognize is we cannot go beyond 1.5. Whatever it takes to do that is the way forward. Understood. Um, just coming towards the close of our discussion, I want to ask you, how do you measure your success? How do you measure your life? We ask this of all our interesting guests because it's complex. The work that you do is long-term, it's changing mindsets, changing policies, training the next uh, generation of students. How do you think about these questions? Gosh, you leave ask some good, good, tough questions, Utkash. So I've had about 50 PhD students complete their PhDs with me. Um, I hope very much that each of those was a collaborative process and that we worked together, that I learned from them. Um, what I require of them is to recognize that they come from somewhere and to respect where they come from. I am very keen that they bring their own worlds in. Uh, because we're social scientists, whether it's from their own language or their own data sets, we happen to be in Cambridge, which is a place of global excellence, but we are only as excellent as the people who come in here. And so that's always been my ethos in terms of bringing my students into my research group. Of course, they have to learn the, the very important tools. They have to be cutting edge, but there is a moral responsibility to give back to your community. And I guess one of the reasons I'm talking to so happily is because there are opportunities now to give back in some shape or form. And that I think is very, very important. So every time one of my students and many of my students will have gone on to work for governments or done other things, things that they have done that allow them to achieve those objectives that they set out for themselves, those mm. I see as a sign of success. The other way you see success is how you manage your own personal life. Uh, with with your academic life, so to 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 say, I, am I satisfied? Because if I am not, then those who work with me are going to feel the the sense of my dissatisfaction and my inability, therefore, to understand them. So, raising my own family, working with my 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 own, and then treating those who are part of my research group as part of an extended kinship network mm. is something that I also regard as important. I know different you know research groups are different, but I. I see that that being able to have like-mindedness and respect difference is something that I did not always feel was there. I mean, when I came um, to the UK, there were far fewer women uh, in the university sector and certainly very few women who looked like me. 
Um, and that was something that needed to be recognized and changed as well. And so you do it in the ways that you can um, best appreciate that those who come your way, that you guide them and help them and support them. And so I'm very proud when that happens. And, and when my research group comes back and says, you know, I did this and I go, fantastic, you know, that, that's great. So it's, I don't count it in, in, in um, literally the numbers of students, but it's the ideas and the sharing. And at the moment, of course, that whole debate is in, in the narrative around decolonize or diversity or uh, those are important moments. Gotcha. Uh, I know you're pursuing a mission, many missions rather. I want you to conclude with a thought experiment. In the coming decade, if uh, the missions that you're trying to pursue, if you're wildly successful, what would the world look like? Gosh. Um, I would like to imagine that the farmers who are small farmers across the world have a more sustainable livelihood, that the knowledge that they have allows them to choose whether they want to stay in farming or not, but it's not a forced exit. Um, everyone can't farm. We're using the land way too much, but it has to be a matter of a sustained engagement about how we manage the land. I hope less land would be under agriculture and land use would be much more covered by forests. We cannot imagine using the water and the soil without that forest world being bigger than it has as it is today. And in terms of those of us who are consumers and not producers, I hope we think much more about how little we pay for food today and how we are not paying the full price and be willing to pay more at the top end so that we can reinvest back in the food system. So rephrasing what people say Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see. That's what I hope for. Fascinating. Uh, Dr. Shelja Fennell, thank you so much for your time and your insights and for helping us visualize a world uh, that is worth living. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Utkarsh.